thank you ever so much for praying for us. We do covet your prayers and we desperately need them. So thank you for praying for us. We also found a great pub that uh, if you're in Red Hill and you visit the Plough, um, you might get 10% if you mention my name. 10% more, that is. But there we go. Let's look at Luke 16. If you've got a Bible, you'll need it. So please open up uh, Luke chapter 16. And let me tell you about a man whom we all know. There's a man that we all know. He's the man who lives in a place where you don't want to live. You know the man. This man lives uh, at Waterloo Station. You walk by this man. This man lives at Epsom Station. And sometimes you walk by him. Sometimes you may even have to walk around him. Sometimes you've perhaps even stepped over him. You know this man. This man sometimes has a dog to uh, guard him in the night. You know this man. He sometimes has a paper cup that he's got from another shop, sometimes when he's got enough money. And uh, the money in this cup, he shakes now and then, asking for it to be added to. You know this man. This man makes his bed from newspaper or from cardboard or from whatever he can get his hands on. But you do know this man. From this man's bed, he can see where other people live. He can see uh, the sharp flats where people with good incomes can afford to live. He can see the homes and sometimes the lights in the homes that drive away the darkness. He can guess that those homes are full of warmth that he doesn't experience as he sleeps on the floor. But you do know this man. He's our neighbour. But we know this man. We may not know his name, but each one of us would have a Lazarus in our mind's eye. A Lazarus who we could walk around, walk over, ignore. But we probably don't know his name, but we do know this man. He would long to change places with us. We would not want to change places with him. But we do know this man. In Luke 15, Jesus has been speaking to two groups of people. We've looked at it over two weeks. There's the disciples that are there. There's also the Pharisees that are there. We can see that from chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And and Jesus, as we've thought about in recent weeks, he gets a lot of uh, heat, very little light, because he is being told by the Pharisees, you're mixing with the wrong crowd. And Jesus says... I'm going to show you the extent of my love. Disciples, I'm going to define to you my mission just once again in case you've not really grasped it. And I'm going to do that by telling you three parables about something and someone that's lost. A lost shepherd, a lost coin, and two lost sons. You are lost, Jesus says to the religious elite. You are lost, disciples, until until I come and find you. And when I find you, there's great rejoicing in heaven. That's Luke 15. Luke 16, the same two groups of people are in Jesus' earshot, so to speak. So you've got the Pharisees and the tax collectors once again. You've also got the disciples. So in Luke 16, verses 1 through to verse 13, you've got a parable, and that's a parable for the disciples. It's a parable for the disciples where Jesus is saying once again on the topic of money that is so relevant, it's so timeless that a lot of Luke is about money. Jesus is saying to the disciples, verses 1 to 13, 
You need to think really carefully, really shrewdly, really wisely where you invest your money. If you invest your money in the here and now, it's going to perish. If you invest in the kingdom, it's not going to perish. It's going to grow. There's going to be a rate of return that no fund manager can even dream of. Invest in the kingdom. And then he turns his eyes and his attention in verses 14, right through to the end of the chapter, verse 31. Now he's looking at the Pharisees. First part of the chapter, disciples. Second half of the chapter, the Pharisees. If you've got a Bible, listen into verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they loved money. They heard all that Jesus was saying, and they were sneering. They were sneering at him. You can imagine them kind of getting hot under the collar, a bit like Boris Johnson this week. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, you are the ones, what do they do with the money? You are the ones, verse 15, who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Jesus is going right for the heart once again and saying, when it comes to the people who I mix with and the people who you mix with, you've got it wrong, chapter 15. When it comes to the topic of money, verse 14 of chapter 16, where are you investing? You're using money because you love it. You're using money to build yourself up. You're using money to justify yourselves. You think money can give you the identity that you want. Let me teach you about your identity. Let me teach you about your value. Verses 19 and 20, let's look at our passage. What is Jesus teaching us about our identity? He introduces us to two characters. They could not be more different, verse 19. It's chalk and cheese. Look at verses 19 and 20, sentence 19 and 20. One is rich, one is poor. One is covered in luxurious garments, verse 19. Fine linen, purple, that's an expensive type of cloth. One lives in luxury, one lives in poverty. One is feasting. Literally, the word, verses 19 and 20, it says, he lived in luxury, he was feasting, literal translation, every day. One is in the house with the lights on, driving out the darkness, enjoying the warmth, enjoying his uh, Calvin Klein underwear, enjoying his fine linen clothing, sitting on his John Lewis couch, and he has a full stomach because he's feasting every single day. He's on the inside. But then there's the other person. Then there's the other person who is on the outside, who doesn't have any warmth, who has very little clothes. The contrast could not be more concrete but if that's all we see if we just see it's warmth and cold if it's clothing and non-clothing if it's a full belly and not a full belly there is one crucial thing that we miss because the contrast gets even more only one of the two men has a name only one of the two men has a name here's the rich man he's got absolutely everything in this world Here's the poor man. He's got absolutely nothing in this world. He's living on scraps. He's living on the floor. He's living in the outside. But he has a name. Now, you might be thinking, hey, big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Let me tell you why. You go through the Gospel of Luke if you've been around for a few months. That's all we've been thinking about. Name one other time in a parable that Jesus teaches, in a story Jesus tells, where he gives somebody a proper noun, a name. This is the only time where he gives somebody a name. Oh yeah, let me prove it to you. There's a woman 
there's a man. Let me tell you a story about a shepherd. Let me tell you about a lost coin and there was a woman. We don't know her name. Let me tell you about uh, a sower and a seed. We don't know the farmer's name. There's not one name in a parable that Jesus tells apart from this one. And Jesus says, there's a rich man. He's got everything the world has to offer, but you don't know his name. You don't know his identity. And what does his name mean? This is very important. You might look at the bottom of your Bible and it says, Lazarus, that means God is my help. God is my good. God is my ultimate treasure. He's my ultimate hope. He's my security. But for the rich man, his money is his security. His money defines him. His hope is in his resources. There's a really funny clip. If you've uh, had the joy or the privilege of teaching or uh, going through Christianity Explored with someone else, there's a great clip where there is, uh, someone gets a gun put to their head. You say, I don't like where this story is going. There's a BMW that pulls into the shop, and there's a man who's about to put his keys or click the, the zapper, the buzzer, whatever it's called, the thingamajig. He's about to click it and get into his nice, shiny BMW, and in comes a man with a balaclava with a gun, and he puts it to his head, and he says, your money or your life? Your money or your life? And then the man freezes. He's about to get into his car. And he says, your money or your life? What's the matter with you? Don't you understand the question? And the man says, but my money is my life. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is telling the story framed in such a way that the Pharisees see they are front and center in this story once again. Verse 25. Here is the rich man, and Abraham comes to him and says, My son, you've had your good things in this life. Lazarus has no good things. But you've had all your good things. You've made your choice. You've chosen your security. You've made your identity, your riches, your wealth, your status. But the reason he doesn't have a name is because he is defined by his wealth. He's defined by his riches. Is defined by his stuff. But when his money is spent, when it's all gone, when he dies, he's a nameless person. He's the rich man. If you, this is teaching us, if we base our identity on anything that is not the God of the Bible, moths can attack it, rust can destroy it, time can waste it away. It's a bit like one of those times when you go to a business function or a dinner party and everyone, it's, it's, a, it's a race to look at the name tag, isn't it? Because you can't remember someone's name and so your eyes go down but you're trying to kind of do it discreetly without staring at someone's name. And the first question is always, what do you do? It's a shorthand way of saying, what's your identity? What stage are you at in your career? Are you higher or lower than me? People don't remember your name but they will remember what you do. And that's what's happening here. If we place our identity in anything, that is not the God of the Bible, that's not the gospel, it can be lost. We can become nameless. But if we trust Jesus, if we lean on him for our security, if we become like Lazarus, if we say, here's our help, here's our hope, here's our security, then we have an identity that nothing can take away. We have a hope that is secure. We have a future that is solid. We have an identity that cannot be eroded, that doesn't go up and down like the FTSE stock exchange. We have a status and an identity that's given to us by a God who is generous, by a God who is grace-filled. 
Do you have a name? Or are you defined by your career? Are you defined by your uh, position in life? Who are you? I'm a mum. Who are you? I'm a grandparent. Who are you? I'm a... Or has God given you a new name? And secondly, has God given you a new name, not just for this world, but has God given you a new name, a new identity that goes into eternity, that goes into eternity? This passage teaches us three things. Look at verse 23. It's the second part of the story. We have the rich man who's now died, and he's in hell, where he was in torment. He looks up, and there are three things I think we need to learn from this. Look at what he asks for. Verse 24. This is the rich man that's enjoyed all the good things in his life. Verse 24, he says, Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. This is a really strange request when he's on earth. The rich man is used to bossing people around. He's used to being in charge. He's used to being, uh, eating at the top table in the best restaurants, of wearing the best clothes. And that hasn't shifted because he's now in hell and yet he still wants to enjoy the status that he enjoyed when he was on earth. He's still trying to boss Lazarus around. He's still clinging to his authority. Verse 23, on one level he understands he's in torment. He says, I'm in agony. I'm in hell. He understands something of that. But on the other hand, he's absolutely blind to his greatest need and what actually happened to him. That's the first thing. He's still clinging on to his status. He still thinks he's in control. He still thinks he's a somebody. Look at verse 24 for the second thing. Well, Father Abraham, I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place. What's the implication here? I think... It's saying, look, I've got some brothers and I don't want them to make the same mistakes that I made. Please, will you go and give them, give them a pyrotechnic show. Give them something really that's going to blow their socks off. I don't want them to come and join me. They need proper information. I didn't get a warning when I lived on earth. You've got to tell my brothers, please, verse 24. That's the second thing. The third thing, people that study the Bible full-time, Bible commentators. Very interesting. They say, what is interesting, not just what he asks for, please would you send Lazarus and give me some water to quench my thirst. Not just what he asks for, what they say is very interesting is what he does not ask for. Verse 24 again, please send Lazarus to give me some water. I didn't get any proper information, I need a warning. But this is what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask to be released. He doesn't say, no, get me out of here. He doesn't say, please will you send someone to rescue me. Please will you send the angels to come and rescue me from hell. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask to get out. And I think that's because he doesn't think there's a problem. He doesn't think there's a problem. If you've spent any time with someone who struggles with addiction, whether it be coffee second mug before 9.30, that's probably me, whether it be money, sex, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be, if you've spent any time with someone who struggles with addiction, normally there are at least two common factors, whatever the addiction is on. There is a disintegration, there's also isolation. 
Disintegration, that's something that you're seeking to provide a fix for you. It doesn't satisfy you anymore, so you have to get more and more, or you have to go deeper and deeper. You have to go further and further into whatever the substance or the person or the issue is to satisfy you in a way that you used to be satisfied. It's disintegration. It's kind of an erosion of the outside. It's a a slippery slope, a downward trajectory. I need more to satisfy me. One chocolate bar ain't enough. I need four. So I'm going to go. One small Coke is not enough, so I'm going to get the maximum size. I need more. One wife isn't enough. I need to have an affair. I need more. That's disintegration. That's the first thing. The second thing is an an isolation that addiction causes. The people that love you can't get near you anymore. There's a a self-blaming going on. There's a blame shifting. You're in denial, so you push people away. Loved ones who come to you and say you have a problem. You say there's not a problem, and you push them away to hide the issue. Both of those things can be seen here. Why does the rich man not say, get me out of here, send me a rescuer? Because he doesn't think there's a problem. Look at uh, verse 24 again. These issues of fire. This is a parable, so we need to be careful here. This is not where we get our doctrine from hell sufficiently. But there's a fire, there's a consuming of his image, of his status. Everything that he held on to in his earthly life, his wealth, his splendor, it's being eroded. He still thinks he's holding on to it, but it's being eroded. It's, it's disintegration. He's still trying to boss people around, but he can't really anymore. Things are unraveling. Notice the distance, verse 23. He's also isolated. Verse 23, he looked up and he saw Abraham and Lazarus far away. There's a chasm, there's a distance. There's four or five phrases that indicate there's a great distance between uh, hell and where Lazarus is now in heaven. Verse 26, you see the word chasm. So there's this idea of disintegration and isolation, this separation that's happened. It's a really vivid painting, a really vivid picture from this parable of Romans chapter 1, of God saying, okay, If you want to live your life in freedom away from me, you can do that. And God does that in his judgment. If that's really how you want to behave, if you don't want to live with me as number one, if you want to live as number one, okay. Someone has said hell is the greatest monument to human freedom that there is. And that's why the rich man doesn't ask to leave. He wants to be in charge. I don't want to go to heaven. But please, brother, I don't want to go, yeah, I don't want to go to heaven because I'm in hell. But please will you warn my brothers. But I haven't done anything wrong. There's no regret. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he's saying, verse 14, you are lovers of money, and you are sneering at me. And when you love money, you are seeking to justify yourself. You're thinking that if you just have enough, then all will be well in this life. They are self justifiers and he's saying okay will you justify yourself in this life by what you do by the money that you accrue by the prayers that you offer by the places that you stand will you be money justified will you be works justified or will you be grace justified Jesus says what you find honorable verse 15 and what God is what God finds detestable. What, what God finds detestable, you find honorable. 
You've taken what I love and you've turned it on its head. You've had your opportunity like the rich man to care for the poor, but actually rather you'd rather puff yourselves up. You'd rather keep all the money and resources yourself so that you might justify yourself. And that is not how I want people who love me to live. You are not shaped by grace. You don't know the gospel. You're not showing my love to people that are different from yourself. Here's an example. Imagine you are a hard-working person. You work really, really hard. You work all the hours God sends. You probably work too hard. But you are working so hard because, because you feel good about yourself when you've done a good day's work. That's why you work so hard. That's why you... That's why you want to get promoted. Because when you work hard, you feel good. You're trying to justify yourself. And when you work so hard, it's a great opportunity to look down upon those who don't work so hard. Those slackers, those lazy people, those young people normally, who don't work as hard as they should do. You're justifying yourself in your hard-workingness. You can also work hard and be someone who is grace-justified. You can work really hard, and the difference being is how you look at other people. You can work really hard, and rather than looking down at other people, you can seek to get alongside them. You'll seek to be compassionate towards people who are lazy. You would seek to challenge them lovingly. You don't look down upon them in a superior way. You seek to be charitable to them, care for them. Because hardworkingness is not your justification. It's not what makes you uh, stand before God confidently. I'm not like them. But here are the Pharisees who are saying, money justifies us. We enjoy money. It gives us a security in this world and we trust even the next. And Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't. You're to use money generously. You're to use money for people who are in need. You're to use money for people just like Lazarus. Let me tell you a story to illustrate what I really, really mean. If you are grace justified, that means that you will love people who are in need. You use your resources generously. You hold on to money lightly. You love people who worship a different God from you. You care for people and seek to support people who are in need. You don't walk over Lazarus. You seek to minister to him in a wise and a careful way. You love people who have different moral standards to you. You love people who vote differently from you. All of those signs are signs that you are grace justified. You believe the gospel. You stand before God with a new identity that comes from Jesus, not from yourself. You have an identity that goes into eternity. Your deeds outrun your words. I was at a funeral on Monday. One of the standout sentences for me, speaking about somebody who had lived their life for Jesus, was the difference about Maria was that her deeds outran her words. It's a lovely phrase taken from a Matt Redmond song. Her deeds outran her words. She wasn't someone who just spoke about helping people. She did it. Her deeds outran her words. What would people say of us? They were all talk. Or would they say, actually, they were just like that lady who died? Their deeds outran their words. What a challenge. If that's the identity that lasts into eternity, loving and caring for people, how do we get it? Look at verse 29. How do we get it? At the very end, Jesus 
has Abraham have a dialogue with the rich man. And he says, look, I know what it takes to escape all this. How you can escape all this? Abraham says, no, you don't know how you're going to escape all this. You haven't got a clue. This is the only way to escape hell. You need to listen to Moses and the prophets. Emotional experience will not work. Jesus floating above the ground to kind of tickle your fancies, that will not work. Even seeing Jesus Christ and the empty tomb, that will not work. What you need to escape the flames of hell, verse 27, is not a spectacular event. If there was something spectacular, like Lazarus showing up or a ghost showing up, Father Abraham, make sure it's really spectacular for my five brothers who are still on earth. That is not what will work. That is not what gives you a new identity. That's not what changes your heart. The only thing that works, says Jesus, is that you need the Bible. You need to be amazed by the Bible. You need to understand what the prophets were saying in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not an optional extra. Somebody asked me just recently, do you believe the Old Testament? I said, yes. Hopefully you've seen that as you've come along. It's not just known that Jesus died. It's not just known that he rose again. The really thing you need to understand to save you from the fires of hell, you need to, need, you need to know why he died. You need to know why he rose again. You need to know why. You need to know your value. You need to know how much I love you. You need to know what Isaiah was pointing to all the way back in Isaiah 52 and 53. You need to know how much I love you. And if you know how much I love you, then that can change everything. That will give you a new identity. That will give you a new name. You need to know how much I love you. In Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, this really famous passage where the prophet Isaiah is looking forward for the Messiah, for the king who would come and suffer for the people that would be taken to heaven for the sins of the world. Isaiah says this, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And we looked upon him and were appalled. He was disfigured beyond any human appearance and his form was marred beyond human likeness. The Lord made him a guilt offering, but the results of his suffering he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus says the only way you are saved from the reality of hell is not if you stood in front of an empty tomb. It's not if you saw Jesus walking around. The only way is if you have the Bible and you understand the scriptures. Without the Bible, we won't know who Jesus is. Without the whole of the Bible, we won't see why he had to come and die. You need to have the Bible. And what is Isaiah talking about? Verse 11 of Isaiah 53. He says, he sees the results of his suffering and he will be satisfied. What are the results of Jesus' love for us? What's the result of the cross? What's the point and the purpose of the cross? Cross. What's the aim of it? What's Jesus trying to achieve at the cross? Two things, to exalt his Father, that his fame and glory would be seen throughout the whole of human history, but also to win you. What's the results of Jesus' suffering? What makes Jesus satisfied? This is mind-blowing, if we get it. You are. I am. We are the results of Jesus' suffering. 
We are the results of the cross. We are the people that Jesus Christ has won as his inheritance for the glory of his Father. It's the whole of the gospel. It's the whole of the ball game, as American friends would say. Why did Jesus suffer so much? Why was he isolated from his Father? Jesus did not say on the cross, Father, these, these nails are kind of hurting me. This throne is, is pretty uncomfortable. On the cross, Jesus knew isolation that no addict will ever know. The Apostles' Creed says that on the cross, Jesus Christ descended into hell. He knows a disintegration, a separation from his Father that no addict will ever know. He was crushed on the cross. He was separated at the cross. He was torn apart at the cross. He descended into hell at the cross. Why? Because he loves his Father so much he was willing to do it and he wanted you to be with him for all eternity. He will see the results of his suffering and he shall be satisfied. We all know his name, this person we walk beside and walk over and perhaps buy a big issue from. But believing the gospel gives you a new name. It doesn't matter how you feel. The cross shows us the justice of God, the mercy of God, and the love of God. That we are valued beyond our wildest dreams. You are known. You're given a new name. You're loved. You're valued. How much are you worth? You're worth the cross to Jesus. That's the gospel. And if you want to see your value, you'll never know it, says Abraham, verse 29. Unless you read Moses and the prophets, unless you know the whole of the Bible, then you'll truly see how much Jesus loves you. There was a pastor in Philadelphia and he was journeying to uh, say goodbye to his wife. She'd recently died and he's in the car with his kids and it's a sunny day and as they're journeying to um, burial, the sun's shining. The, uh, there's a truck that pulls up beside them and gets in the way of the sun's rays and so a big shadow is cast over the car and the truck drives on. And the pastor, uh, Gerald Barnhouse, turns around and says to his children, one of the things that mummy doesn't need to be afraid about and you don't need to be afraid about is death. And he asked his children in the back seat this question, what would you prefer? Would you like to get hit by the truck? Would you like to get run over by the wheels of the truck that just passed us? Or would you like to be covered by its shadow? What would you like? The children respond, well, of course, I'd rather be run over by the shadow than the truck. He says, mummy doesn't need to fear because death is just a shadow. And it's only a shadow for mummy, it can only be a shadow for you, and it can only be a shadow for us. Because Jesus took the full force of the truck. He was run over on the cross. He was smashed on the cross. And because of that, we see Jesus' love for us. We see God's value for us. We see a new identity that Christ alone can give us. And death, death is no longer to be feared just a shadow and it's only a shadow because Jesus took the truck for us the truck of God's wrath he was run over for us he was isolated for us he was torn apart for us friends a sign that we are grace justified is that we see that we marvel at that and that opens our wallets it's just a resource to be given it doesn't identify us we're given a new name 
So whether we've got lots of money in the bank or whether we've got very little, we're treasured by God, we're valued by God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? If you do, it can change you. Let's pray. Father, there are so, so many things that we can use to justify ourselves. We can say, we've, look at all we've done. We've served so much. Look at all we've read. We've read so much. We've prayed so much. We've worked so hard for you. And we come to you like a child comes to a parent, wanting to justify ourselves. Please help us to understand that in Jesus Christ, there is a hope that stands the test of time. There is value and love shown to us in such abundance because your grace is so deep it's like the ocean and because of that please help us to store up treasures in heaven to realise that this world is not all there is and as we store up treasure in heaven help us please also to be really wise stewards and generous not just with money but with all the resources you've entrusted to us Just like the disciples were challenged at the start of this chapter, just like the Pharisees were challenged as well. Thank you that as we look to Jesus, those of us that are Christians, we are fully secure, fully known, fully loved, and fully justified in him. Amen.